welcome to the Design Thinking Roundtable podcast, which explores various aspects of design and how it can create, change, and social impact. My name is Anne Fayard, Associate Professor at New York University. I'm an ethnographer who researches, teaches, and practices human-centered design with a focus on social innovation and collaboration. Mayu Nissen is a New York-based creative director interested in the intersections and interplay between research, systems thinking, and human-centered design, and in creating strategies and solutions to leave the world in better shape than he found it. He's currently the Design Lab Director at the New York City Mayor's Office of the Chief Technology Officer. Previously, he was a Creative Director at Frog, where he led the Interaction Design Discipline in the New York Studio, Principal Designer at Urban Scale, an urban systems practice focused on design for connected cities and citizens, and a consultant at Red Associates and Radar Station. His design work has been exhibited in multiple places, such as New York's Museum of Modern Art and Stockholm's National Center for Architecture and Design. He regularly teaches and guest lectures. Originally from London, he has lived and worked in the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, and Denmark. He likes big cities, hard questions, and shades of black. Mayo, welcome to the Design Thinking Podcast. I give the official bio. Could you tell me more about your work and what motivated you to do this work? What is your background? How did you get interested in human-centered design and systems thinking? Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a, a designer and creative director. Um, I live in New York. I've been here about a decade. Uh, and I currently work in the mayor's office of the chief technology officer for the city of New York. Um, and where I've been for about a year. Um, in terms of my, my journey to this place, uh, I originally studied industrial design. Uh, when I was in high school, I was interested in design of various sorts, um, but also interested in uh, the social sciences and was thinking about studying uh, anthropology. Um, I ended up studying industrial design in a school that had kind of a, an engineering bent to it. Um, and so what was... What that took me was into learning about the craft of making objects uh, and thinking about what it means to create new things uh, for people to use. Um, but I, I quickly felt that there was something interesting that that education didn't include, which was thinking about uh, a kind of having a specific focus on users, uh, a specific focus on the process. Um, and so my work kind of took a turn towards service design, uh, kind of innovation consulting, Uh, I studied in Copenhagen at the CID, the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, um, and then found myself uh, in New York. Um, and what was really interesting was that those two interests that I had uh, in high school of design and understanding people through kind of an anthropological lens slowly came together over the years. Uh, uh, I'm the son of an anthropologist. My mother's uh, an academic in uh, studying um social anthropology. And what was interesting was talking to her about my work, she'd increasingly be like, wait, but that's what I do. Um, and so we'd have these conversations where that overlap became increasingly apparent. Uh, and design research and thinking about people's uh, role, not just in using products, but how they can be incorporated into the process of creating products um, 
has been a big part of my work, even as my work has shifted from the creation of physical products into services, systems, digital products of various sorts uh, over the years. Um, and then most recently, uh, I've joined the city of New York, uh, where I'm working in the context of local government, uh, thinking about what design and technology, um, what role design and technology have in cities and in local government, which is the continuation of something that I started investigating when I was in, in grad school in Copenhagen, uh, when my thesis project revolved around civic engagement and uh, urban infrastructure. Um, so a lot of those threads kind of come together over the years and they, they ebb and they flow. Um, but uh, that's kind of where I've, where I've landed now. Thank you, Mayo. It's always fascinating to me to see how personal journeys are about these ebbs and flows. I love how you connected your interest in anthropology and the craft of making objects. Um, as we were preparing this conversation, you told me that systems thinking, systems theory, and ecosystem mapping are core to your practice. And this echoes with an increasing call for taking a system's lens when designing, it also resonates with a lot of what my research on service design and social innovation has shown. So I was wondering, why do you think there is an increasing recognition of the importance of systems thinking as being central to the design process? Why today in particular? It's a good question. I mean, I think having a systems view of the world is not in and of itself a new thing. Um, that's something that people have been thinking about for as long as people have been thinking about create, doing work that has an impact on the world around them. Um, certainly over the course of the 20th century, um, that's been something that has been something of a constant, although not always necessarily incredibly visible and not always part of the, the mainstream design discourse, um, but it's always been there. Um, I think in terms of why I feel that it's incredibly powerful now is when we look at the world around us, when we think about how people live their lives, when we think about how people get information, when they learn about what's available to them, when we think about how they communicate, when we think about the, the products and services people use, those are increasingly, without exception, connected in ways that are complicated and maybe illegible to the people using them. Um, and so thinking about a system as a whole, whether that's a, a technical system, whether that's an organizational system, uh, whether that's an information system, becomes a lot less optional when you're thinking about how to intervene in that system. When you're looking to create a product or you're looking to change something, something that someone uses, if that product is not itself a standalone thing, if you think of it as a standalone thing, you're going to miss something uh, and you're going to have unintended consequences uh, and that is not going to have the effect either on that one person's experience uh, or on society at large that you expect or that you want. And so at least acknowledging that and thinking about the system as a whole in some kind of a holistic way becomes a way to design things with an intended outcome that have a higher chance of achieving that intended outcome. You are right to highlight that this is not new. 
I can't help thinking of Papenick's uh, design for the real world um, as I'm listening to you. To, to clarify for our audience, would you say that it is a variation of human-centered design uh, or simply an articulation of what is the core of human-centered design? I think the question of where it exists in the process and its relationship with human-centered design is an interesting one because human-centered design if we step back away from it as a buzzword and it as a unit, as a way of seeing things, it centers a human. Uh, you might say user-centered is even more specific. It centers a specific human who has a specific role in relation to a product or a service. Um, and by centering one individual versus taking a holistic systems view, those are in some ways in opposition. Um, and there's something that this happens in a couple of different ways in design is the ability to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time or to move between them rapidly is often a way to unlock a complex problem. And so taking a holistic systems view one moment and then saying, okay, we've thought about the system. Let's now think about a specific individual and how they live their life and how they might exist in a specific context and how they might use a specific product By moving between those scales, you start seeing a single problem space from different angles. Um, and so you kind of need both. If you think just about systems and you lose sight of the fact that what we're talking about are human beings with their own lived experiences, their own emotions and drivers of behavior, you've missed something. But if you only think about a specific individual and you don't think about their context, and there are many different contexts you can think about, then you've taken a very individualistic view of something and you miss the fact that every individual lives in a context and functions in a context. Um, and so in terms of a methodology or, or a perspective, I think it's a natural partner, um, maybe a natural evolution or extension of, of human-centered design. Um, and it, it's helpfully opposite. Um, and so that makes it very compatible Um, as an additional lens to put on all the way through that process. And a lens you can put on and you can take off uh, as you move through. I really like the idea of like the lens or like the zooming in and out. And so that, you know, you have a system and then you can zoom in on like specific uh, moments or users and then uh, coming out and then doing it all over the, the system so that you can, um, I guess, uh, make sure that the, whatever you're trying to do for that kind of user is not having unintended consequences for another group uh, of uh, users or humans. I wonder if this is changing the role of the designers, giving them a more strategic role or um, moving designers to more of a facilitator role, which is something many service designers I interviewed in my research uh, stressed. Or maybe it's it's about putting on different hats, the strategist hat, the facilitator hat, etc. I think it's different hats. Uh, I, I also think it's worth noting that you know different designers have different levels of altitude that they are most comfortable at, most skilled at, uh, and able to have the greatest impact. Um, and as soon as you start taking a holistic systems view of anything. As soon as you start zooming out, you immediately move beyond what is 
traditionally the realm or scope of a designer, and you find yourself working with people of different backgrounds, who have different perspectives, who see things in different ways. Um, and at some point, the question becomes, what are you doing here? You're a designer. This isn't a design problem. Um, and the way, the way I see that is the only way to really solve a design problem is to see the big picture. Um, but at the same time, the magic trick that a designer often has is seeing the big picture, but then being able to zoom back in and use the power of making things tangible, of, of making, of that kind of traditional craft output as a way to ground that strategic conversation. Um, and so by moving up and down, it's moving between realms that often are not connected. And by connecting them, allow those conversations to start becoming in sync and aligning them. Um, and by moving outside of the traditional realm of a designer allows the design work that may itself be the creation of something small to be part of that bigger picture and have a much bigger effect that can be an outsized effect of that small, small intervention. Um, there's a lovely uh, saying that Buckminster Fuller always had, which was make me a trim tab, uh, which is a very small little flap on the edge of a, um, a propeller or a fan. Uh, and that that very small adjustment would change the direction of a huge thing. Uh, and in a lot of ways, but you need to understand what the huge thing is that you're trying to change before you can make that small adjustment. Um, and I think that that ability to zoom in and out and connect those things uh, is a really powerful one that very few disciplines have either the skill set needed or in some cases the permission to do that. Let's move now to your own practice. Could you tell me how systems thinking and systems theory, as well as ecosystem mapping as a tool, informs your practice? Maybe you could share some specific projects that illustrate the value of systems thinking in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing is maybe breaking apart systems thinking and system theory, which is a way of seeing the world, a way of thinking about the world and interventions in the world. Um, and in some cases, the kind of theoretical underpinning of that from something like ecosystem mapping, which is, it's a very specific methodology. Uh, it's a particular act that can happen at certain points in the process that is often the visual representation of the more fuzzy ways of thinking. Um, and the ways of thinking are kind of in the background, right? Those are Those are how I see the world. Those are how I see projects. That's how I see client or partner problems. Whereas ecosystem mapping is something that at a certain point, we're like, okay, let's go map the ecosystem. Um, so maybe one example uh, where that kind of comes into play, this was uh, a couple of years ago uh, while I was at Frog, we were doing some work with uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies uh, and I was working closely with a team from Oklahoma City. Um, and the project was around criminal justice reform uh, and thinking about criminal justice as a healthcare issue um, that a lot of people who are it, stuck in the criminal justice uh, system have health issues, have social issues, have mental health issues, and find themselves in that in a loop where they may get out of the system, they get dragged back in. Uh, and so we were looking to reduce recidivism 
um, and bringing human-centered research, prototyping, uh, and kind of human-centered design into that process, which is traditionally a process of policymaking on one side uh, and enforcement and service delivery on the other side, uh, and trying to take a, a more holistic view of that. And one of the things that became very quickly apparent was that all of these different parts of what I was seeing as a system were actually many separate systems that often didn't speak to each other at all. Um, and it's actually quite rare for a Department of Public Health and the court system and the jails and prisons and the sheriffs ever to be in the same room together, to talk to each other. Um, and so part of the role of the process, it wasn't so much my role, but the role of the process was to bring those people into a room. So that's very much the facilitator role that, that we talked about before. But another part of it was working with the kind of core team that was focused on this, on this project, who were representing various different parts of this the local government in Oklahoma City, was just being in a room together in front of a whiteboard and mapping out, so who's involved here? Who's involved here and who often talks to each other? Who's involved here but never talks to each other? Uh, what are their incentives? What are their, What is driving the policies they have and the way they do things? Um, and what that looked like was a whiteboard with a very, very complicated Venn diagram on it uh, with a lot of arrows and a lot of post-its connecting those different dots. Uh, and this was very early on in the process. This was in, before we'd actually gone out and done a lot of research because the people we were working with knew the system. They had been in the system in a variety of ways. And so we were able to at least block those out kind of in the abstract. And that served as our starting point to say, okay, so we should talk to that person to understand their incentives. And we should talk to someone representing this type of organization so we understand how they hand someone off from one organization to another or how data flows from one place to another. And by making that ecosystem that was talked about in the abstract in long swirling meetings of like, oh, we should talk to the DA, we should talk to the courts, the judges, um, by getting that down on, on paper or on a whiteboard uh, allowed us to step back for a second and say, where do we know enough? Where do we not know enough? Where do we understand the motivators? And where do we think there is the point in that system that can have the greatest leverage? Um, where do we think there's a gap or an opportunity that we should intervene to really, if we change this one piece, what will be the consequences through the system? What will happen if we make a change here that will flow through that ecosystem as either data moves from one place to another, or in this case, someone who's involved in the criminal justice system, someone who's maybe been arrested, gets moved from one organization to another and gets passed from one person to another. What will happen if we change this one thing? And by making that explicit, by mapping that, making it visual, we were able to have much more focused conversations than we otherwise would have um, and be able to step back and consider it as a holistic whole rather than as a standalone independent components uh, that have to function as closed pieces.
So that's kind of in the the public sector, um, but the same methods apply across the board. Um, I'm thinking of some work uh, I did a couple of years ago for a large financial services company. Uh, they um, and this was kind of the the B two B enterprise invisible behind behind the scenes, the stuff that no normal human being would ever encounter. Um, very technical, uh, very complex um, things that I am not an expert in. And as a team, we came in and we just mapped out who does what, how does the money flow, who talks to each other, uh, and then who's feeling pain points, who's feeling, um, who is served directly by our client in this case, who is only impacted indirectly. And again, by getting that out on paper, uh, we were able to have very different conversations um, that traditionally, A, would not have been the realm of a designer, uh, and B, we were able to have conversations and things that we were not the experts in because we were able to get other people's expertise into a shared space on a shared piece of paper um, and then be able to connect those dots, uh, which was uh, a powerful method to apply in a space where otherwise we would have been lost uh, amid a sea of, of buzzwords and, and technical talk. As you were talking of shared space um, created for ecosystems mapping, it made me think of the concept of boundary object. It seems to me that the ecosystem map is this boundary object that is co-created by the different actors, and it allows them to visualize where they stand and where others stand, what are the boundaries, but also what are possible connections, relations. <laughs> One of the things that can be when doing that kind of mapping is that when you start, you never know enough. I mean, when you end, you also never know enough, but you know more, hopefully. Um, but when you start, you may only have a very vague sense of how the pieces fit together. But by getting something down, you can then take that to some of the people who are involved in that ecosystem and say, does this represent how you see your role? Uh, does this represent the relationships you have with the other actors represented on this map? And so by getting something down, even when you know it's wrong and you know it's incomplete, it starts that cycle of something that can then get better and better and better. Um, even if it is then never 100% complete and 100% perfect, to some extent, it serves a purpose to uncover some of those topics that come up when you talk about someone's role, someone's relationships. Uh, and so it both works to, to document and capture something um, but it also works then as a, a prompt uh, in conversation to have conversations that otherwise would be very, very difficult to get to purely in the abstract. I mean, it goes back to the, the tension you were mentioning between the, the level of a human-centered design, which is very kind of individual and the system, and it's in this kind of a tension and back and forth. And so in a way, that's what you, you're doing. You're getting people to, you know, get that map of the system and then deciding where they are and whether they agree or disagree. So it becomes like a, an, an interesting, like it's this back and forth and this like tension that you're visualizing, which I think kind of triggers these conversations. Mm -hmm. 
Before we close our conversation, I wonder if you could share what are the key skills to be a system design thinker? It's an interesting one because it's the, the advice for non-designers is read a bunch of design stuff. Uh, and the advice for designers is often look beyond the design world and understand the other disciplines that overlap and are adjacent with design as a way of having a broader perspective. Um, so those are those those point in different directions. I mean, I think thinking of someone who is interested in that kind of service systems thinking and bringing that to a design practice, uh, whether they themselves have a design background or not, uh, there's a lot of really interesting reading in the information sciences, in cybernetics, in you know, the edges of computer science um, in kind of organizational psychology. Um, I mean, there's a couple of kind of foundational texts that are, are particularly interesting and I found really valuable. Uh, I'm thinking of um, Danella Meadows' uh, Thinking in Systems is one, um, which, which opens some really interesting thoughts around stock and flow, information flows, ways of having mental models of, how systems work um, is one. Uh, another one that I found incredibly valuable is the work of uh, Stuart Brand, her, who's really hard to pin down in terms of specific discipline. Um, but you know, his thinking about the role of of time and layers in in systems uh, and you know, pace layering and sharing layers are, are kind of thoughts that have stuck with me and bounced around in my skull for a really long time uh, and helped me think about where it is that as a designer, I'm intervening in a system uh, and what that effect might be. Um, and then I think just on the one hand, reading widely, uh, understanding a lot of different disciplines, but at the same time, keeping that kind of humbleness of each of those disciplines goes deep, right? And has an intellectual history and lineage. And as someone who dabbles in many of them, it's important to remember that it is just that, it's dabbling. And being a generalist has its own value, but it's different to going deep in one or two of those. Um, and so that kind of sense of being okay with being a generalist and picking up ways of seeing the world, ways of acting on the world, um, without the necessarily the need to go super deep uh, is a very fine balance to strike. Um, and I think that's where a lot of design research in the sense of user research and, and interviewing people also comes into play is that that's its own type of humbleness. It's saying, I may be here in order to design a thing or to improve a system or improve a service, but I need to speak with the people who live that life and live in that context because I cannot know enough to do that by myself. Uh, I need to see the world from different perspectives uh, and I need to understand what that means from those different perspectives. And that kind of underlying humbleness of, I will never know, I'm not here to be the expert, is its own way of thinking about the design process and the role of a designer in a design process. Um, regardless of whether that's about reading or whether that's about interviewing people. 
What you said about humbleness made me think of uh, curiosity, another key quality for design thinkers. I believe humbleness and curiosity go hand in hand. To be really curious, you need to be humble and recognize that you don't know. I also love your point about recognizing the value and richness of being generalist, but also the limits that come with being a generalist. So as we end, I'd like to ask one last question. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours at the intersection of human-centered design, systems thinking, and research? We talked about this a little bit already, if, you know, reading widely, being curious, being intellectually curious. Um, I think a lot of it is learning, and a lot of this learning only comes through practice, but learning how to zoom in and out of a problem uh, and learning to unstick yourself by doing that um, is something that is something, you can train yourself to do that. Uh, and when you are focused on one very, very small piece to pause for a second and zoom out and think about the whole. And then when you're trying to get your arms around a big complicated problem and it's all just too much and you're getting vertical from it to say, okay, let's zoom in on one person, one moment, uh, one place. And to be able to, to, to do that, I think that's the, that's one thing that is hard to explain and hard to teach, uh, but an incredibly valuable skill. Um, and I think a lot of it is just being very conscious of that and catching yourself when you're stuck or catching yourself when you've got yourself in a tangle and saying, that's fine. That's part of the process. It's okay to be stuck and it's okay to be in a tangle, but I have a, a tool in my toolkit to get out of that tangle, uh, to get myself unstuck, to move on to the next thing, even if I'm not 100% sure that this was right. Um, and that's just something to, to remind yourself of and to tell yourself quietly in your head. And sometimes when you're working with other people on a team to help push the conversation that is a shared conversation up and down the altitudes or in and out of the specifics, um, because that'll move the entire conversation forward. Um, even if it means you then have to go back, you then have additional perspectives uh, that you can solve the problem that you previously weren't able to solve. Um, so I think it's find as many tools as you can, intellectual tools, uh, methods, take all of them with a pinch of salt or a handful of salt. Um, no one discipline, no one method is the one to rule them all. Um, and the more you can bring those together and switch between them, uh, the more you'll be able to tackle big problems, have a big impact, uh, and, to, and to learn to be comfortable in a space where there are no right answers uh, and there is no correct solution, um, but you can still have the types of impact on the world that you're, you'd like to have. Thank you. That's a nice philosophical ending. As we started, I was telling you how recording this podcast conversations on design made me realize how rarely we take the time to sit and have conversations. So today I really enjoyed being able to expand on topics we had briefly discussed over the last two, three years, um, each time we kind of briefly met. 
Um, so thanks again for your time and for these great insights. And thank you for the, the thoughtful questions and uh, prompting me to think about things in ways that I haven't always thought about or articulated. Um, so this has been really great and I hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to Design Thinking Roundtable. I'd like to thank our sponsor, NYU Tendons Department of Technology Management and Innovation, and our partners, the Design Lab at NYU Makerspace and DFA NYU. If you think this episode could be of interest to someone in your community, share it and don't forget to tag us. Our Twitter handles are DFA NYU and at NYU Makerspace. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.